Hello and welcome to this interview with Alexander, founder of Datesite. How are you doing, my friend? Good, good. How are you doing? Glad to be good. on. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, glad that our mutual friend, Chris Williamson, decided to intercede and connect us. Do you mind giving our audience who may not be aware of your excellent website and or Twitter account a little rundown of your career history and credentials? Sure, sure. So my name is Alexander. I previously was in a master's for research in behavior and cognition and just finishing now in behavioral and cognitive neuroscience. And I have a lot of research interest in dating, attractiveness, relationships, that sort of thing. I made the date site, website, Twitter account and all of that to uh, conduct surveys, publish kind of really in-depth articles related to popular topics in dating, kind of break it down for the, the public in a sense. And you're not a feminist, it turns out, despite what Twitter might might be saying. Turns out I'm not. And certainly, you know, if you have takes that are not extremely ideological in one direction or another, the people who are on one side or the other, they're going to accuse you of being on the opposite side in that sense. So, you know, I've had people say, oh, he's a misogynist, uh, eugenicist, right winger. And other people, oh, he's a blue pill feminist over here. Just, yeah, back and forth. But no. Yeah, it's, it's nice being in a sensible be. center, I suppose. <laughs> um, so let's let's jump straight into it then. Why, why don't women like gym cells? Why 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 is every in-shape guy being priced out of the dating, dating market, apparently? <laughs> so gym cells, sure. So I put a <laughs> some pictures, a meme on Twitter, and I said, women, would you like this body type? And of course, this is a... A fitness model he's kind of jacked and you get a lot of feedback that say no i don't like that and so you know they want kind of or at least they say right a stated preference they would prefer a guy with a with a dad bod someone who's a little fluffier perhaps more comfortable and, and there may be different reasons for that one of the kind of consistent feedback that came up was okay he seems like someone who might be kind of high maintenance he seems like someone who might be a narcissist these were kind of ideas associated with that but deeper than that it might be that this indicates perhaps uh, a sense of untrustworthiness uh, through the pathway of infidelity, so to speak. The idea that, okay, we have this man who's conventionally attractive, very good body, he has more options, and does that mean that he could cheat? And that's something that's seen uh, in a lot of research on jealousy, for example, that mate value discrepancy predicts kind of these perceptions of unfaithfulness and higher jealousy, that if you have a partner who's maybe out of your league a little bit, that can make people really kind of uncomfortable in a relationship. So that's related to high social sexuality, the propensity to cheat, if I'm thinking correctly. Is that a heritable trait? Is it correlated with testosterone, which is why it might be closely correlated with the kind of guys that are in shape? Is it that it's correlated with the dark triad style narcissism? What's what's going on there on a psychological level? Yeah, sociosexuality, sure, it, it is heritable. I think between 0.3 and 0.5, like a lot in personality, of course, that 50-0-50 rule that practically all behavioral personality traits are kind of somewhere in there about half, half heritable. And yeah, that is associated with infidelity. But I think even more than that, so there are small associations with, for men, physical attractiveness and infidelity, for example. There was an article in Psychology Today that said, why you should not date a masculine, attractive man. And basically the whole article is all the research on like, oh yeah, an attractive guy who's masculine is more likely to cheat. And you do see a small association there. Interestingly, not with women, that with women it seems unfaithfulness might be more associated with mid-level attractiveness, whereas higher level attractiveness in women seems to kind of have a curvilinear relationship. It kind of goes down there. So, but yeah, that, that's one perception. You know, a, a hot guy that's out of their league and they think, okay, that could be something that, that is risky for me, that he might not commit, he might have too many options. 
And yeah, even just body comparisons, you know, if someone says, yeah, you know, this is someone that's much more attractive than I am, are they going to be super comfortable in that relationship? I don't know. So is it true then that the, the chads are getting all the girls that it's super easy for those guys to go and clean up and that women are only, what was the OkCupid data that you broke down? 80% uh, of women are going for 20% of men and all of their all of their expectations look wiser askew. Is, is that quite accurate? Because I've, I've heard it repeated by quite a lot of Red Pill and Manosphere podcast talking heads. Yeah, that has certainly filtered into the popular culture, the 80-20 rule. And I that was something that was seen largely in, in dating app swipes, for example, that about 20% of the population got about 80% of kind of the matches. But if you look beyond that to message rates, messages that convert to phone numbers, there have been studies that have scraped all of these different messages that they got off of, of Tinder and that sort of a thing, uh, to people that actually meet up in person and, and have casual sex or form relationships, you begin to see much closer parity, that it tends to be one-to-one. -one. And similarly, if you look at uh, individuals reporting their happiness with the use of the apps, uh, in representative samples of the United States, you also see kind of about half of the people say, yeah, I'm pretty satisfied with this. Other half say no. And at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to be the case that regardless of these match rates that are very discrepant, in part because of a very large uh, imbalance of gender ratio on these apps, right? There's many, many more men on these apps. So it's always going to be the case that some men are not going to get a lot of attention. But when you begin to look at actual sexual behavior, you begin to kind of see a different picture there where the top 20% of men, top 20% of women, the so-called promiscuous 10 to 20%, they largely seem to be meeting each other, having sex within that pool. Whereas kind of the remainder 80% of men and women, they tend to be following very close monogamous patterns, one partner over the course of the year, serial monogamy over the course of a long period of time, but typically not the high promiscuity associated with that promiscuous 10, 20% or so. Right. So, so deviating from the, from the stats there, this is something that I've been talking about with my colleague, Dan, who is going to do a video with me on the economics of dating apps and the infrastructure and how technological solutions to courtship have been changing how dating and the landscape works. I've been a guinea pig for a little while, and I can tell you, I bloody hate it. These apps are, are awful. It's a sort of revolving door carousel of self-commodification that I think is designing you to stay on the app so it can sell you advertisers, um, advertisements and subscription services, rather than obviously trying to, trying to lead to committed relationships. But the point you've raised is quite interesting there, is that particularly a lot of the pop evolutionary psychology doesn't delve into that stuff. It only delves into the single layer of heuristics. It only looks at the superficial swipes rather than when we go beyond the superficial, how do your personality metrics, how does your awareness of intersexual dynamics lead to a higher success rate? So I'm just wondering if there are certain factors which are influencing the number of interactions that mean that the mid-level men who might be perceiving the chads having an easier time aren't having as many interactions and this is why it's why it's artificially sabotaging the numbers like an example i'm thinking of is everyone that's on public transport these days is always looking at their phone or the, even if they're walking around they've got earphones in and that just means that both men and women are de facto unapproachable you're alone in a crowded place and so the fewer instances of eye contact or stranger conversation means that fewer relationships are coming of that. Are you seeing those factors play into that? 
Yeah, certainly there is that that social isolation in a sense there, kind of like you described. If people are immersed in the online world, they may not be meeting up as much in person and interacting in person. People kind of isolate themselves in a bubble. And one uh, thing related to that is the decline in friend group size right now, the decline in uh, visiting live events and parties. There has been some research that looked at this comparing the 1990s to now. People had much larger friend groups. 10 people on average for men. Now you see something like 50% of men that say they only have one friend, 20% have no friends at all. Very few people within that early age demographic, 18 to 25, would report having gone to an actual party in the last month, whereas in the 90s, it was practically all of them. So you see kind of that movement online where people are very, very isolated in a sense. And if that's the case as well, people go on these apps, they work for some people, they get some matches, but then if someone gets no matches and that's their only social interaction, their only way that they're reaching out for dating and romance, they can feel like they're completely isolated. And if they see someone else that even gets a little bit of attention, they think, yeah, that's gotta be a Chad. He's gotta be in the top 5% because my experience is like nothing at all. And it's like, yeah, he's probably, you know, functioning for a lot of people, but if you are completely isolated, it can kind of augment that, that impact or that perception there. So then is it true that 27% of men 18 to 30 are virgins? Because I've seen this stat floated by, originally it was published in the Washington Post, if I remember correctly. And I've spoken about this before, but you've broken down the data in a much more nuanced way. So do you mind walking us through that? Sure. So this is a chart, of course, that became really, really famous from 2018, and it continues to be circulated now. I'm sure everyone has seen it. So I call it kind of like a meme statistic at this point, because the chart is just everywhere. So the General Social Survey, uh, the data taken from the General Social Survey by the Washington Post, they made a chart. And it said, this is the percentage of men that are virgins, basically. Well, the question that asked is like, have you had sex since age 18? But okay, but still, a fair pro uh, proxy for virginity in that case. And it looked at 18 to 30, and it said, okay, this is 27% of men, 18 to 30, who are virgins. And so, okay, so that seems kind of high if you think about people at the end of the 20s. So I went into the GSS statistics and I broke it down by smaller age bins. We're looking at age 18 to 20, 20 to 23, 20 to 25, and so on. And when you look at the ages, it makes a lot more sense. You get a very high percentage of men who are actually virgins between 18 and 19 or so, which is you know, what you should expect. And this, in other, maybe a better data set is the National Survey for Family Growth shows a similar thing that, you know, around 18 to 19, you can have, you know, 50, 60, 70% of men who report, okay, I'm a virgin, but that drops off really quickly as every year goes on. By the time you get to about 25, 26, you get like lower than, than 5% that still report being virgins. So we see not that, you know, this, 27% of men remain virgins across this whole decade into their 30s, that this is a period of virginity for men right there at the beginning of, you know, leaving adolescence, entering early adulthood, where they simply haven't had sex yet. But yeah, they're going to go on to pretty quick. So there was a really extensive Atlantic article that came out not long after that, I think it was 2021, maybe, that was talking about Generation Z, my generation, being in a sex recession. I hear lots of testimonies from people in our audience, even some people that I know that say not only can they not find a compatible partner and not only are they not getting, for men it's usually any attention, for women it's the kind of attention they want, that's just how dating dynamics work, but that they aren't having any intimate relationships even if they're having sparse amounts of sex. So if that's the 2018 to 2019 trend, 
Has that continued? Has that been exacerbated by lockdown, social atomization, and dating apps? And why don't the data, in the way that you break it down, really jive with people's expressed experience that we constantly hear about online, which is saying, well, there's just no one out there for me? Sure, sure. So again, statistics that kind of filtered into popular discourse from the general social survey. In 2018, we saw men report being sexless much more. And people said, this is really strange. This, this is a problem in men. 2021, in the same survey, we see that women actually shoot up to sexlessness a little bit more than men. And this, of course, is when there's the lockdowns and things like that. So that can contribute. The most recent data, if you look at it again from the general social survey, it shows you know, the, the amount of people, the percentage of men and women both that have not had sex within the last year, really low. It's about 10%. And so there has been an article at the Institute of Family Studies that was the title, Has the Sex Recession Ended? And it seems that, okay, sure, those artificial conditions from the lockdown, they may have isolated people even more. But what's pretty consistent across the years is that it doesn't seem to be kind of a male or female issue. These sexlessness stats, they tend to rise in parity. And there was that one year that it didn't kind of play out that way. But of course, people's personal experiences will shape to a great deal how they perceive what's going on. And there's been research on that as well, that people tend to overestimate the amount of sexual activity, success, uh, number of partners in, in friends. So this is kind of a perception that people have is kind of these promiscuity narratives that everyone else around is kind of doing better in the sexual marketplace than they are. And if someone is completely excluded, and particularly if they're going online and talking to other people who are excluded, then they might form that perception that like it's really, really common when it's not that common. So we keep hearing these meme stats with the, the OkCupid data of saying that women have miscalibrated what they expect in a man. And I, I do think culturally speaking, there is a sense where there are a large number of women that are writing the articles in outlets saying, where have all the good men gone? Because they're earning six figures. They want a man that's six foot. They want a man who's very intelligent. So they're, they're shrinking their dating pool to the 666 number. Um, the memetics of 666 is, is quite amusing to me. But then this is something that, that you've written about repeatedly, is that with the deluge of online content of things like the Whatever podcast and that, it might be malforming our perceptions and polluting our frame of reference to think that there is this higher class of super promiscuous people, particularly the the men that are hooking up with multiple women and having this um, in-person harem, whereas the beta cucks are relegated to having only the digital harem and they can only hope to aspire to that level. Um, is that class, that sort of 20% that's hooking up with the 80% true? Or is that just something that's being artificially presented to us by rage bait clips on Twitter? Yeah, especially looking at, for example, the women on the podcast, those are a very extreme sliver. And as far as the 20%, it seems to be what's much more the case is assorted to mating for promiscuity in that sense. So there's a top 20% of men who are more promiscuous than the bottom 80%, but that's also the truth with women. There's a top 20% of women, and you see that these individuals tend to get together they're basically in a pool in a sense that's kind of apart from the remaining 80%, about about 60% of who are actually only having sex kind of in committed relationships. And I should say even larger because it's about, about 80% of men and women both that if they're having sex at all, it's in the context of a committed relationship over a long period of time. But then, yeah, you have that other 20%. But who are they having sex with? Who are the men having sex with? It's not the remaining 80% of women. It's that same 20% of women that promiscuous 10 to 20%.
And that's a term that came from epidemiology, uh, the promiscuous 10%, they used to call it, because this is a population in men and women that you see as well have exponentially higher rates of STD transmission. And that's another way, you know, people sometimes question self-reports, are men lying, are women lying? But that's a way that kind of corroborates them in a sense that, okay, yeah, we have 10 to 20% of men and women both much more promiscuous. You can see that because they're spreading more diseases. The other people, not quite as much. So I've, I suppose, two things on there. The first one I want to go for is in that cohort of the 80% of men, and this is something that you've alluded to on Twitter and in, in blog posts about incel subculture before. Is it that they have a moral prohibition, sincere conviction against promiscuity, and that they are monogamous? Or is it that they don't lack motive, they just lack opportunity? So many of them would quite like to be in the promiscuous 20%. They just don't have the physique they believe is necessary, or mainly the competence or the confidence to go out and make those opportunities and take that risk and risk rejection and just play a, a qualitative game rather than a uh, uh, sorry a quantitative game rather than a qualitative game. Is it that those guys would actually like to be that twenty percent, or is a lot of the messaging to say contain that twenty percent of female promiscuity, which they're stating is much higher than it actually is? Is it just that it's um, uh, trying to swing the numbers in their favor against the 20% of men that they think are sleeping with the 80% of women? Yeah, that's a good question. It covers a lot of different uh, areas. So men score much higher than women, for example, in sociosexuality. Men tend to be pretty open to casual sex. But at the same time, if you ask men, how much do you desire a relationship or a monogamous relationship? They also rate that very highly. So it's not the case that men only want uh, uncommitted sex or casual sex, but at the same time, they also want long-term relationships. So there's kind of a give and take there. And the extent to which men will kind of pursue one or the other, it is probably checked by their own beliefs and values and also by availability. So there's some indication, for example, in, in the research in evolutionary psychology that men's attitudes toward promiscuity are kind of shaped by their own success in the dating market. So if men feel like there's more competition, they might support promiscuity less. If they feel like other men have higher mate value than them, they might support promiscuity less. Past failures in dating experiences, and, and this has been manipulated experimentally, so you know that it actually has kind of an acute effect that you put men in these experiments, they're swiping, they're getting more or less likes. If they're getting less likes and you ask them to rate, you know, how much they're open to promiscuity, already it's lower. It happens fast, the effect. So yeah, if men are more restrained if they feel like they're being outcompeted in a sense then they might kind of adopt beliefs in the short or long term that say okay yeah we kind of need to rein this in and, and kind of make it fair for everyone in a sense that's that's the other point i wanted to build off of between the 20 and 80 percent dynamic what are the average body counts for men and women are they being skewed by that 20 percent and are our perceptions in line with the average because what and this is something that even my boss, the, the owner of the business, Carla, said, Gen Z have to get comfortable with the fact that they might run into a girl that slept with 20 guys before. And that again didn't sit right to me. And it just didn't didn't jive with my immediate experience with lots of the women that I know. So is it true that people have much higher average body counts than they did years ago? And is that the case for the majority of people? Well, certainly not for the majority. If, if you look at averages, the, yeah, that will be skewed. If you look at the median, where most people are going to reside, then it's much smaller. Then you have between three and seven for men and women. So 
Is it higher than in the past? Probably yes, depending on how far back you go, but it's typically not the case. As you'll see again, kind of exaggerated, these kind of hysterical narratives like, every woman has had sex with 30 people, that's completely normal, you're going to encounter that all the time. That doesn't seem to be uh, especially common at all, no. And so with promiscuity, you wrote a really interesting article about the effects of oxytocin desensitization. This is something that we've heard about quite a lot, and it's something that I had definitely thought was plausible, but you raised something interesting about us being serial monogamists rather than being inclined towards promiscuity and how that might actually damage the pair bonding capacity. Do you mind myth-busting the thousand dick stare a little bit? Certainly. So, yeah, that's another kind of research-based meme that has filtered into popular culture, this idea that promiscuity fries a woman's ability to pair bond, right? That and, and the mechanism for this in particular that people sometimes say is, okay, every time a woman has sex with someone, she bonds to them a little bit, there's oxytocin that's released, and then you become desensitized that over time, kind of like, like a drug, like a drug addict. And apparently, you know, it's frying this, these receptors permanently in the brain. So there was, this is very loosely based on research in, in prairie voles, an animal that when it mates, it tends to mate for life. It has a lot of sex early uh, and then Oxytocin has a very strong role in this prairie vole, and it simply will stay with that partner for life. It won't mate with other ones after that fact. So we know that oxytocin and also vasopressin in men have a role in pair bonding. And the idea is basically that does, you know, do the prairie voles apply to the human beings? Of course, this is research that has never been done in human beings. It's not the kind of thing that you could experimentally assign human beings to like, oh, you're going to go have sex with a bunch of people and, and you're not. But what's probably much more likely the case, because we still kind of do see an association between promiscuity and impaired pair bonding, so to speak, in the long term, higher infidelity, higher rates of breakup and all of that. Is this because oxytocin receptors are being fried in the brain? Turns out you can take those out of prairie voles, and even then you'll still see that they can kind of bond. So there's much more beyond just, you know, the role of one or two hormones like oxytocin and vasopressin. But some people, you know, Kind of all of these things, promiscuity, all of these things that we contribute that contribute to pair bonding, these have a heritable component. And it's very likely that some people simply, in a sense, were kind of born with an impaired pair bonding ability, so to speak, or less propensity to form long-term relationships or serially monogamous relationships. And so what happens? They follow these some patterns, and it's kind of the causality is reversed there. They didn't lose their ability to pair bond from having a bunch of partners. They had a bunch of partners because they always kind of had that impaired ability to keep a long-term relationship together in the long term. A little bit of pop psychology just off the cuff as well. You often hear about the phenomena where after a woman sleeps with a man, her hormonal pair bonding increases to him. But after a man sleeps with a woman, because of the Coolidge effect of sexual novelty, testosterone decreases and he starts going off her. This is a fear that's actually been expressed by lots of women of my generation saying that, well, this is why women should not just not sleep around, but should be commitment averse because you don't know if the man with so many options available is going to commit to you if he slept with you once. Is that true? Are we really that biologically determinist? No, it's, it's, I don't think it's quite that strict. And, and certainly sexual intercourse, especially over long periods of time for men and women, it does, it does actually facilitate pair bonding in that sense. You know, people that have more sexual intercourse in a long-term relationship 
men and women both, they do tend to report higher satisfaction, more commitment to one another. So it doesn't seem to be the case that if a man is having more sex with a woman in a relationship, that he's kind of go off her in a sense. But what may be the case is men simply have a higher propensity for sexual novelty, kind of like the Coolidge effect, like, like you indicated as well. So it can still be the case that men may seek sexual novelty, even when a relationship is kind of good, which is kind of bleak because we tend to think of like cheating or something as something that happens when relationships are bad. But some people just do that because, yeah, they're seeking novelty. So we've spoken about male uh, mating strategies. What about the infamous red pill talking point? Um, fingers and ears, ladies and gentlemen, if you have kids in the room, alpha fucks, beta bucks. Now, this is something that David Buss and colleagues came up with quite a while ago. He didn't call it something quite that crass. But, and I've heard this repeated before, it hasn't been reliably replicated, which is kind of the benchmark for a legitimate scientific hypothesis. So, is alpha bucks, alpha fucks, beta bucks accurate or not? Sure. So, this kind of began as, as the dual mate hypothesis, with a larger title, kind of the dual mate hypothesis of ovulatory shifts. And the idea here is that women have a dual mating strategy. One is to secure a long-term mate who can provision resources, and the other is perhaps extra pair sex on the side to secure the genes of a mate that is going to be more genetically fit in a sense. And so the idea is that when a woman is ovulating during the fertile period, when she can conceive, she should have a much higher sensitivity towards you know, the so-called alpha, right? Because that's gonna be when she can secure the good genes, that should be when she's especially attracted to him. Turns out that doesn't seem to replicate very well at all, yeah at least the role of ovulation. What kind of does replicate as far as ovulation goes and all of that? Well, the effect of attractiveness, that uh, women tend to have a higher libido when they are ovulating. And if a woman has a partner who is very unattractive, she may be more attracted to men who are more attractive. But if she has a partner who's already very attractive, there doesn't seem to be that effect. And so there's a lot of research going back and forth at the moment, kind of trying to replicate this. Of course, the way it's filtered into uh, the manosphere, popular culture is the alphas and the betas. That also doesn't seem to line up very well with what we know about the most desirable men in a mating context versus kind of the least desirable. Because if a man is husband material in a sense, he actually has a lot of the qualities that, you know, would be considered a high status man, a dominant man in an ancestral environment. Resource provision being one of those. It's not a low value male trait, for example. Yeah, you would have thought if you're relying on the tribal analogies of most popular evolutionary psychology, that you would connect resource provision with being in physical shape because you actually have to hunt down mammoths like those two things would be tied, but that's often something that comes into conflict. However, what they're going to say as a rejoinder to you is that women initiate 70% of the divorces and it's undoubtedly that they're trying to mate switch and trade up because they're being led astray by the chads, and when they're knocked up by the chads, then they go back to some bloke who can provide for them. So is it true that women are instigating most of the divorces because they just want to trade upwards? Is that the case? Well, leaving a relationship for another, it occurs sometimes, mate switching, as you, as you said. But as far as divorces specifically to go to another relationship, those seem remarkably uncommon. Certainly we hear a lot about this statistic now, kind of another meme statistic, that women initiate 60% of divorces, 70, 105% of divorces. It just goes up, up and up every single time. 
So one of the papers that often gets cited is by Rosenfeld. I believe this was in uh, 2015. And they said, okay, women initiate about 60, I forget if it was 60 or 70% of divorces. It's not always clear across all of the different papers that women actually initiate more divorces, but in general, from my review, it seems to be the case. Okay, if you ask men and women, and this is usually not based on divorce filings, but the research tend to be based on asking whose idea was it first? Who wanted the divorce first? And often it will be the case that, yeah, it's women, about 60% of the time. So in that case, in that context, if you frame it like that, do women initiate most of these divorces? Yes. But then if you ask other questions like, did you both want the divorce? You see really high agreement that men and women both say, yeah, we both wanted it. So on the one hand, we're asking like, who brought it up first? She did. But at the same time, if you ask other questions like, did you not want the divorce? Very few men will say no relative to the women. There tends to be very high agreement and similarly high agreement on reasons for divorce. So with all of these meme statistics, these misconceptions floating around, I'm seeing two parallel narratives here. And part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you, as I, as I said off air, is because the narrative you're putting forward actually seems far more encouraging, but less certain than the manosphere red pill narrative often is. And that is that it's a lot more your responsibility to make the opportunities to take your headphones out, to stop looking at your phone, to go to more social situations where you're going to be around women, um, try and do more cold opens like the Gen Xs did in the 90s when they were having higher friendship groups. It's a lot scarier for quite a few men who understandably have become quite risk averse post Me Too, false accusations and the like to go and do that for themselves than it is to be told, well, all these women have slept around anyway, and they're gonna hit the wall eventually, and you just need to get in such a great shape and own all these Bugattis that they just have to submit to you when the time comes. And so what I'm asking, I suppose, is what do you think the motivations are lying behind the kind of narratives on that side, both the sort of Tate, Frush and Fit sphere, and also the black pill incel, we might as well give up, it's all over, it's never been so over sphere, that, as we joked about at the start, are accusing you of being a feminist for not blaming all women as a category, as being irredeemable. Yeah, certainly. So some of these uh, manosphere ideologies, they seem to have a very kind of external locus of control, in a sense. They're not very agentic. All of the narratives are things that simply happen to people they're out of their control uh, they're often very simplistic because sometimes having simple explanations for things in the world feels reassuring even if they're kind of negative if things are nuanced it's much more difficult in a sense and if individuals have more of an internal locus of control if they're more agentic in that sense it puts all of the responsibility and onus on them to find someone so if you say all women are terrible if you can't find a good woman it's the fault of the women. If you say, okay, some women are good, some women are bad, it's up to me to figure out who is and who isn't, then if you can't find a good woman, or if all of the good women reject you, then you have to kind of look at yourself. And that can be a lot more difficult than kind of externalizing that blame onto, onto everyone else. I think that that is a lot of actually the motivation, at least especially for why certain individuals are drawn more to kind of these internal narratives where they're controlling their destiny versus these other narratives where everything is the uh, responsibility or the consequence of these broad social forces that are totally out of their control in a sense. 
So if you accept that you have to be more discerning as an individual and you have to ensure that you're parceling out the 20% of women uh, who might be lying to get fold themselves back into the 80% from the uh, quite a large cohort of women who maybe have been aggrieved at points by the sexual revolution but are earnestly looking for a long-term partner. If you accept that, what healthy practices, both mindset and lifestyle choices as a man should you do to make yourself the kind of man that is marriageable material? And if you choose to not just date IRL but also date via an app, God forbid, wouldn't advise it, what trends do you see on said apps that are leading to men to be more successful and cut against the uh, demographic forces which are going against them, which is there are fewer women receiving higher amounts of male attention? Sure. So something on apps that people still have not seemed to figure out well is having good pictures. If you can go on apps and swipe through photos and you will see pictures of men with dirty bathroom selfies, toothpaste on the mirror and everything. And these are the main pictures that they're putting up. So even just kind of getting the camera right and all that. Okay, another really big one right now, we have you know half of the population overweight or obese. That's a really big one. It's gonna be a non-starter for a lot of guys if, you know, if they don't lose weight and maximize their physical appearance. So especially on apps, very physical kind of environment, right? Your personality is not gonna show through that much. It's going to depend a lot on what you look like, but Outside of that, because it's not going to work for everyone, a lot comes down to simply putting yourself in an environment where you're talking to women and approaching them, asking them on dates. I ran a recent survey on this as well. About 50% of men have not asked a woman on a single men that want to date, have not asked a woman on a date in the last year. So a lot of men are out there like, yeah, I want to date, I want to meet someone, literally not even trying. And that's a really big one as well is that People are pretty much handicapping themselves, expecting kind of something to land in their lap. And, and I, you know, as far as that goes, that's probably the beginning of it. You know, if you're not doing that, you can expect kind of nothing at all. Didn't the majority of women want to be asked out slash even approached in person, which isn't the conventional wisdom you get from outlets like The Guardian these days? Exactly, yeah. And perhaps even more surprisingly, across age groups with the younger women saying that they wanted to be approached even more, upwards of 70%. Which, you know, a lot of people before said, you know, I think that it's probably going to be the case. Young women maybe don't want to be approached so much because they get so much more attention. But no, no. So, yeah, you have, you know, kind of a super majority of women that are saying, I wish guys approached me more. And at the same time, you have a lot of guys that are saying, I have not approached anyone in the past year. So kind of a mismatch there of, of what women would like and what men would like. Hmm. So not only is the virtue in the effort, but you're actually going to be more likely to be successful if you just try. This is a kind of message that is actually quite encouraging. So so the, building off of that then, what is your motivation to do all this, to disaggregate the low resolution false narratives, the popular meme statistics that have entered common parlance? Why did you decide to do this and take so many slings and arrows from what is otherwise a very profitable podcast enterprise? Well, I just began with a research and or with an interest kind of in research and attractiveness, dating and relationships. And the more I began to go through that and study, I also kind of encountered, you know, if you're researching relationships or anything, you're going to encounter all of these different dating subcultures. So I'm hearing stuff from them on the one hand. At the same time, you know, I'm going through grad school and reaching stuff on the other hand. And I said, oh, you know, sometimes they mention these things, but they don't get it entirely right. But there's still kind of a lot of interesting things in the research that I think people would like to know. And so I never set out specifically to kind of like debunk the pills, so to speak, 
but it did kind of turn out that way over time because I found, okay, you know, they get a lot of stuff kind of wrong. And a lot of the time they're really kind of minor academic points that turn into big, big things, kind of like the dual mate hypothesis in a sense. People take kind of these hypotheses, you know, that have some support for them in evolutionary psychology and they've turned them into these, these huge ideologies. And I think it would help people if they kind of just took a little bit of a step back and understood that these were not kind of like black and white rules in a sense, especially when they do get to that point where they're kind of uh, demoralizing people in a sense, where they say, oh no, well, if I'm not an alpha because of this dual mate hypothesis, then, then it's over for me completely. And it's like, yeah, take a step back, kind of regenerate some hope in yourself, try to approach some women, you know, you're gonna be happier that way, you're gonna do better with your life. So I can feel there are audience members screaming at their screen, particularly at me, because I've read this exact comment a thousand times before, quote, if you spent one day at the family courts, you would know that marriage isn't worth it for guys, it's just not worth the risk, hashtag MGTOW. So, having seen that, well, not all the 70% of marriages are instigated by women unilaterally and they're all screwing guys over and that, would you, from the research that you've done, say that marriage is a total lost cause for men and that even if you do go out and meet these women and, and do hookups or, or have a long-term relationship, that you shouldn't enter into this contract? Or would you say that this is still a plausible way of, of codifying your relationship? I think it's still a, a plausible way. And of course, you know, I, I try to be pretty open to the fact that individuals are going to have different relationship goals. Some people, you know, at the moment they're, they're thinking like, I just want to get a girlfriend. So maybe they don't need to think about marriage quite yet. There's other people that say, you know, I would like to be in a committed relationship, but I'm waiting. And there's other people that know from the very beginning that they want to get married. So Brad Wilcox at the Institute of Family Studies, he's kind of released some recent research on this as well. Being married is a really robust predictor of happiness in individuals in the United States. So there's something to be said for that. And again, looking at the GSS statistics across the years, if you ask, <coughs> excuse me, if you ask individuals to in, in marriages to relate or to rate their satisfaction with their marriage, it's actually really, really high. You know, you get about 70% that say very satisfied or satisfied. And given that people seem to be happy in their marriages for most of the marriage, do they end at some point in some cases they do, but that's, you know, kind of what people have to decide for themselves in that sense. Is that a goal that they have in life? Is that something that they want to make work? Because if that's the case, something to consider with the divorce statistics is if you say 60% in a divorce, 50% in a divorce, it's actually lower now than it has been in the past decades. But this is not a statistic that applies equally to everyone. Not all demographics have kind of the same divorce rate. For example, individuals that have a higher level of education. Divorce rate is about 20%. When I say higher level, I'm talking about bachelor's degree in both couples. This is protective for men and women. So there's a lot going on where some individuals are already a part of a demographic that have a much higher risk. And of course, behaviors contribute to that. Looking at reasons for divorce. What are those big ones? Infidelity, drug abuse, physical abuse, simply not doing these things. Boom. Your divorce risk goes way, way down. You know, these aren't Again, you know, internal, external locus of control. Divorce is not something that just simply happens to you, at least in most cases. Some guys will get surprised, but most of the time, it's a slow burn over time created by the behaviors of both people in the relationship. That's why when they get to the point when they want a divorce, they both agree and they say, yeah, we're done with this. Mm, and, and this is partly why, and we've discussed a sort of bubbling undercurrent of resentment 
in the opposition to your message. Partly why this statistic is easier to lean on and the narrative that marriage isn't worth it is easier to lean on than the admission that the locus of control is internal. And even if your partner, and uh, full disclosure without details, I've had some horror stories, uh, even if your partner does uh, wrong by you, it is also still somewhat your fault for having the wrong heuristic going into the relationship, excusing their red flags, picking them and sticking with it up until that point anyway. That's quite a painful admission for people to admit. It's like a crucible to your ego to burn off all the all the dead weight. And that's quite difficult for people to understand. But it is quite an empowering message, not in the cringe way that the feminists have co-opted it, as you've been saying. So here's, here's just actually a, a brief aside. Is there any research on the success rates and whether or not it's a high likelihood of divorce to result from relationships that start on apps versus start in person. Has that been done yet? I think actually, I think that has been done, but I, I, I'm not confident enough from memory to say, but I think that has been looked at. At the very least, I think it has been looked at in the context of long-term relationships and breakups. And it does seem to be the case that when people meet in person, that they kind of stay together longer. And that's probably because a lot of in-person meetups begin as friendships first. They begin kind of through known peer groups. So some degree of compatibility might be kind of sussed out beforehand. Whereas on relationships, or excuse me, on dating apps, people get into a relationship as often like, I went on a few dates with this person, I like him, I'm gonna keep dating him. They might wind up in a relationship before they really kind of know that person. So I expect that might be kind of what comes down to it. And even perhaps due to assortative mating for traits that predict compatibility, because if you're dating within a peer group or people that share things in common, then you already have something kind of compatible. If you pick people off a dating app, maybe you like what they look like, maybe you get along in person, but maybe you have less compatibility in that sense that kind of leads to problems down the road as well. Mm. So lift weights, <coughs> don't get blackpilled, touch grass, do more things, meet more people IRL. That's the general message. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> excuse me. That's what I would really recommend for, for individuals is that they uh, that they try to meet more people in real life, especially because we see so many people that are, you know, kind of blackpilled with dating apps right now. They just straight up say, it doesn't work for me. But then they're not doing anything at all to meet people in person. So they need to kind of expand their friend and peer groups. They need to get into hobbies where they're coming into contact with a lot of women, basically, right? They need to talk to those women. You know, it, it, people used to go to bars, have a drink, talk to all the people that came in, and it really is kind of that simple in a sense. Right. And and so, just before you say where people can find you and follow all your research, am I right in thinking that you work with Keeper? Because I've covered Keeper on the website before, and it seems to be an AI marriage matchmaking algorithm. Do you mind explaining how it's different to the existing dating apps? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm working with Keeper recently actually pretty excited about this i remember when i first saw it before they reached out to me i thought this is a really interesting idea i had always wondered why no one had tried to do do that before in dating apps because the idea is okay an algorithm that has all of these different personality traits that we know kind of predict compatibility with people over the long term the idea to get them into long-term relationships and ultimately marriage is the goal here so setting people up essentially with what we know based on the research for long-term relationship success and a matchmaking service. So then, you know, after the algorithm, there is kind of a personalized element there as well, getting people together. 
And of course, you know, if you ask like, why haven't other dating apps done that? Well, maybe because they don't care. That's not their goal. Their goal is just to get people swiping and, and going in the circle. This is something where the actual goal is to, yeah, you know, it's successful, the goal, get people into a long-term relationship and marriage in that sense. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, this is a really cool project. I think that's very interesting. And then they reached out to me and I thought, oh, well, in that case, yeah, because I already kind of like the idea of it. So yeah, I'm going to support this and, and uh, help with it. It was interesting because I heard on Spotify recently, because I'm too tight to pay for premium, I heard a Tinder ad that ends with no matter what, Tinder is your route to self-discovery. I was like, right, okay, that's exactly what they're selling you and why these apps don't work is because every relationship is not what you can mutually will the good in another. It's how relative to me, to me can this individual engage in a transaction that makes me gratified and fulfills my self-esteem. It's very egocentric. It's very consumerist. And, and so what is the, what's the success rate of Keeper? Is it still under construction? Have any marriages come from it? What's, what's the deal there? So I don't know offhand the success rate. There have been marriages that came from it. And uh, the CEO, Jake of Keeper, he's posted a few times that they're getting a much higher conversion to marriage rate than the dating apps, obviously. I think, I hate to even give a statistic because if I say it's too low, I'm going to feel bad. But it's substantially higher than, than the marriages that, that come from, you know, typical dating apps. So it, it, looks, it looks really promising in that sense. Of course, that's, that's the goal. And that's, you know, kind of the service start to finish is to get people paired up, married, basically. So, yeah. Fantastic. And so with that, I suppose, uh, where can people find the rest of your work? And what have you got coming up? Sure. So the website, datepsychology.com, and then on Twitter, datepsych, and YouTube videos as well, alex.com date psych and that's pretty much what i'm doing for the time being is writing the articles doing the videos making some posts yeah fantastic well thanks very much for chatting with me today mate i really appreciate it and to the rest of the audience thank you very much for watching as always until next time goodbye